Welcome to this bonus episode of Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Greg Cott, but today we are doing something we love to do, turning the mic over to one of our producers, Andrew Gill. What's up, guys? How's it going? <laughs> we know what you're up to here, Andrew. This is one of your all-time favorite artists, right? Yeah, you, you might recall those couple of years when I kept bugging you guys over and over and over again. <laughs> it to, was years. To have uh, the Mountain Goats on the show. Um, you making us mixtapes con- continually uh, <laughs> trying to convince us. Uh, you know, look, and John Darnielle is a fantastic interviewer, great storyteller. Indeed. Yeah. We had them on the show in 2019, listeners might remember. And since then, there's been three albums. So it's, yeah, I, yeah, he, he is no very prolific. And that was a great session with them. Today, I, I have an interview with him um, because he's got a new novel coming out called Devil House. Um, mm. He's become very acclaimed as a novelist, um, as well as, you know, the Mountain Goats being uh, viral on TikTok lately. You know, um, there's... <laughs> A lot going on in the in the John Darnielle world, but um, that is just a sentence I never thought I'd hear. Ever. Yeah, did you hear about that? The Mountain it? Goats viral on TikTok. Yeah, it was a couple of couple of months ago. The uh, one of the songs off their album Tallahassee, mm-hmm. No Children. It just started popping up and going off on TikTok. People went crazy. I am drowning. There is no sign of land. You are coming down with me. They're just multimedia mavens. These are such strange times. <laughs> the band had nothing to do with it, you know, but it just happened. Yeah. This album that was 20 years old, one song just went Maybe crazy. someday we'll go viral on TikTok, Greg. <laughs> Not holding my breath on that You need one. to have something people can dance to. Now, now, well, well, is Devil House in his... Now, he's a fantasy fan, you know, yeah. Dungeons and Dragons kind of... Uh, uh, is it in that wheelhouse? Well, this the premise of this book is... Um, a true crime novelist who mm-hmm. is writing a book about a unsolved murder that happened in the eighties. And he buys the house where the murder happened, moves into it and goes through this elaborate process of like imagining what happened there. Um, mm. And there's a lot of twists and turns. There's a okay. couple of stories within a story. It, it's Does good. he do a podcast? Because <laughs> no, that would he, truly make it au courant. Oh no, the uh, the the character in the book does not do a podcast, but he has had um, one of his books made into a movie. Um, okay, so. you know, one thing I think I learned was, and that I think other Mountain Goats fans can glean from this interview is how the music and the books relate or don't um, in John <laughs> Darnielle's mind because. <laughs> I asked him a lot of questions about how they relate, and he told me about how they don't relate. So, <laughs> All right. After a quick break, John Darnielle on Sound Opinions. Welcome, John Darnielle. It's back to Sound Opinions. We're happy to have you. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. This is on the occasion of your, your third novel, Devil House. That follows Universal Harvester in 2017, Wolf and White Van in 2014, You know, I have to admit, I've been a Mountain Goats fan for a very long time, and I hadn't read any of your books until I got this one as as an advanced copy. And I think that part of the thing was the books all have these very intimidating or almost scary kind of like cell lines kind of, you know, they read very metal. Yes. Like this is going to be dark. This is going to be intense. 
you know, like Wolf and White Van, like that was described as like a guy makes a role playing game and people die, you know, and he, he's got it yeah, disfigured. Yeah, yeah. And all, well, I mean, know. there's a lot of death and gore in all my stuff. In the books, it's true. The, the books true. do lean dark. It's true. Yeah, yeah. But then, uh, you know, especially like Universal Harvester, like just your writing, you know, I should have known this is the guy who writes all the songs in the Mountain Goats, and they're going to be filled with, yes, horror and terrible things, but also full of empathy and full of humanity. And so uh, why was I afraid that these things would be too intense for me? I, I should have read these years well, ago. Well, it could go know? a number of ways. I mean, you know, there's, I think, <laughs> I think when people uh, veer into books from elsewhere, you know, it, it's okay if we're a little uh, hesitant to, to think that a person can wear both hats. I think there's am- ample evidence in history of, you know, of people who have become successful in another field, getting a book contract and then delivering a book that we think, well, I know they're going to sell a bunch of these because you're famous, right? <laughs> but uh, you know, there's a lot of those. It's like, and I, I don't blame anybody who 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 is who is uh, hesitant. You know, I mean, I didn't worry about the quality level. I knew it would be it was high quality, but um, you know, I was I was no, worried you. that I I might maybe emotionally couldn't handle it. You know, um, I can't think of anyone who has like had a very successful music career and a very successful book career as well. Well, so, Patty Smith writes good books. Uh, oh, that's true. That's Patty true. Smith writes real good books. But fiction, she doesn't write fiction, does she? And I got to say, although his early um, novel, King Inc., I don't think has aged all that well. You know, for fiction, I don't know. Because like Nick Cave has become a pretty a pretty uh, persuasive writer of of nonfiction, like his sick bag book, which I was really mm-hmm. skeptical of. Mm-hmm. That was actually a really good read, you know, and it was just tour diary stuff. But, but, uh, yeah. but as far as novels, I don't... Uh, I know there is one, there's a guy from Portland and I met him on a book tour and he was in a, uh, not, not a, not a really big band, um, but he, he writes, what's his name? Willie, um, Willie Vlotten, right? So he's a rock guy who writes novels that are well okay. received. I haven't actually um, gotten around mm-hmm. to reading them because they were written in the 20th century. So <laughs> maybe you'll wake up on a floor somewhere. Some sort of sanitarium Or maybe you'll call From a dry-out center From a payphone in a suburb I think Josh Ritter actually may actually be doing novels. Good company, I'm sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about Devil House, which I I thought was really interesting. And you know, I read your your books in reverse chronological order, so it was very um, complex. It had lots of twists and turns, lots of stories within stories, retelling of stories, shifting of formats, sort of. Um, but let me see if I can. Give give like a really quick blurb for folks who haven't read it yet because it, it is just coming out. So uh, Gage Chandler is a true crime writer, right? He begins the book and he's living in a house where two people were murdered at the height of the satanic panic in the 1980s. And the reason he's living there is to write a book about those unsolved murders, right? He has a very precise method that right. he's describing at length. Um, his first book was called The White Witch of Morro Bay, about a teacher who killed two students, um, also a true crime story. And it was very successful, made into a movie. However, he took narrative liberties with that story, and he is kind of, it's kind of weighing on him. And so he does kind of wrestle with, uh, 
you know, how he had taken these liberties and, and the consequences of that. Um, and things go from there, but I don't want to give spoilers about how it ends or anything, but is that about right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, it's the first, um, most of my, well, not most, uh, Universal Harvester had, had sort of braiding interlacing texts, but this is a complicated structure, right? Yeah. So it's got, it's got, um, yeah. Gage is sort of the framing story, but there are stories nested inside that. There's at least three stories nested inside that. Uh, and uh, really there's more. Yeah, that, definitely. But, but there's three primary stories nesting in, in, inside the story of, of Gage moving into the house and, uh, and not writing the book he came there to write. Right. It's a great book and it does describe lots of stuff about the devil house, but just for listeners who might be like me and be a little scared off, I don't want to be reading about all this gore. There is some gore, but it's not just all, you know, slasher movie stuff. It's mostly not that I I think. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. Although I will say when, when it comes time to, I mean, there's two extended passages, maybe three, in you know in 400 pages that are they're pretty gory and there's a, an extended passage that that is yes not gory but 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 very painful um and so it doesn't shy mm-hmm. away from moments of pain that's sort of one of the things i do uh is try and find a place where there's some pain and, and stay there you know um uh, and, and see what what might be useful in there yeah uh, but it, but no it's not i mean you know even though i'm a slasher movie fan that's <laughs> like how i get <laughs> yeah. if i'm good at gore, <laughs> right. that's why but but this is not that yeah Really, I was thinking about it and, um, you know, I, I can't help but tr- draw parallels between Mountain Goat's songs and the book, so forgive me. But, you know, like two of these characters, these teenagers who are doing the, this uh, elaborate satanic artwork on this abandoned pornography shop, they totally remind me of Cyrus and Jeff from the best ever death metal band out of Denton, which I'm, I'm sure must have occurred to you. Wait, who do Seth and? Um, oh yeah, Seth and Derek. Um, a little bit. No, it didn't. Could not. No. They're they're not in that in that realm to me. I mean, um, okay, they're not precisely the same, but but it is this kind of slightly troubled teens who are making some kind of art in response to trauma that is misinterpreted by others. So in script that made prominent use of a pentagram, they stenciled their drum heads and guitars with their names. And this was how Cyrus got sent to the school where they told him he'd never be famous. And this was- sure, although, I mean, the thing is like, it's misinterpreted after, after an event. Derek is like, the the big difference is like uh, uh, Cyrus and Jeff are are both kids who get sent away, right? Derek mm-hmm. comes from a very healthy household. Right? His parents are are uh, are uh, very protective and good parents who've worked very hard to get him college bound, right? Uh, Seth comes from a single uh, uh, is, right. is raised by a single mom. So so in that sense, I mean, we get in in the limited. I mean, what you do in a song is so different from what you do in a novel. In a song, you you sketch some right. possibilities, right? And and you don't, right. you know. Um, what what people sometimes call headcanon. They do their own headcanons with with uh, with the subjects of the songs, but what makes the songs work is, in fact, that such details as are there are signposts. They're, they're indications, right? And then you mm. as a listener get to fill it in, right? Even if it's you know, the Beatles' Michelle. Right. Well, we don't really know much about Michelle. You get to make the Michelle you want, but then somehow we all collectively experience the same feelings around a number of very personal interpretations, and that's kind of one of the miracles of music, right? But in a book... Um, you write very specific characters, right? You don't, it's not really about what people bring to the character at all. Your job as the author is to illuminate and elucidate them, right? And so, right. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, I would say Seth is is sort of of that type, but he also he's not angry. You know, Jeff and Cyrus are audibly uh, people who get very angry, and, and and Seth I think is really he's one of my favorite characters I've, I've drawn. You know, he, he's a uh, it's hard not to like Seth. He's he's a very you know he's got a good heart. Yeah, I, w- I was thinking about that idea though of like the gap between people who are making art, the artists. Um, and the audience or whoever is in misinterpreting that work later, which I feel like happens in all of your novels. Um, and to some degree there's, you know, like in Wolf and white van, the, uh, the game trace Italian is, you know, misinterpreted in the, in the courts, you know, even as a cause for these uh, players death. Right. Um, then, um, universal harvester, there's all these spliced videotapes that are, being put out there that people think is some ominous, you know, snuff film or something, but is not really that at all. And then the art in Devil House, you know, um, and as, as well, like the White Witch or story and that the character Gage has written has also been taken in a, uh, in a different way than he expected by the mother of one of the victims. So I, I feel like the the idea of of the the gap between an artist and their audience is sort of at play a lot in this work. Is that something you're thinking about? Um, I mean, I think it's a, a fair read. It's that when I'm writing, I'm just I'm mainly just telling stories. I'm not. Um, this is a a, a sort of um, you know we don't often we don't often um, state what our theoretical assumptions about writing are. Or when we go into it, but a lot of people, whether they've examined it or not, have this assumption that a writer thinks, "Well, I'm going to do this, and here's what I'm going to be talking about," and then writes it. Right? Well, that's a very um, early right. 20th century way of thinking. I mean, Dreiser, I think, is absolutely like that. I think Theodore Dreiser thinks about what point he's going to make, and then he, uh, and a lot of uh, 19th century novelists do this too. Um, you know, thinks about the point he's trying to make, thinks about mm-hmm. what what uh, you know what what figure he wants the the character to cut and then draws the character accordingly. I don't do that at all. Right. Uh, I'm not, I'm not saying, Oh, well, let me, let me make a statement about sure. the artist in this work. <laughs> to me, that would be unthinkable. Right. Uh, I'm trying to tell a story and what emerges from the story. I think it's fair to say often becomes about the relationship between a creator and his work. I don't know about audiences. Um, I don't think that's, that's not how I see it. I think it, uh, I think it, I think questions about the nature of creativity, uh, are very prevalent in what I write. Uh, but I don't, I don't ever think, hmm, how shall I write now about uh, the nature of creativity? Because then if I want to do that, I'll write an essay. You know, um, <laughs> right, of course, when I tell a story, course. I'm kind of telling a story to find out what I think. And the only way to do that is to enter into in earnest, right? You can't, for me, I, I'm, I'm not writing sort of programmatic yeah. literature. I'm, I'm trying to first and foremost trying to storytell. And, uh, and then later, after I've written it, then I can look at it and go, oh, well, yeah, no, it looks like that's, that's true or not true. You know, I, one time, a song, a song of mine called Sax Romer on uh, Heretic Pride. It was a series of images, you know, just a series of images to me, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I hadn't really, you know, it has this chorus that's very anthemic, but it's sort of, the chorus just happened naturally. I wasn't trying to say anything. Franklin Bruno was in studio recording it with me. And he said, well, no, I, I thought this song was about touring. And I was like, no, I would never write a song about touring. What are you talking about? I said, well, sure it is. Uh, and and uh, it's all these all these things you run into on the road, you know, and it feels more and more perilous. And then but you you hold in your heart, the possibility of return home. And I was like, oh, that's a very good reading. I never would have thought of it. <laughs> I never in a million years would have thought of it. You know? Every battle heads to war. Surrender on both sides. 
so that's that's the case is like that when we're talking about these i'm not and i always want to stress this uh, uh i'm not saying i'm not trying to say something and this happens with lyrics too and i was like i, I think there's a, right. a sort of a hermeneutic people have floating around of like the author will explain to you what he meant i don't really look at it that way i think the author's fair to say if a reading goes astray if a reading says well this song seems to me about the price of wheat then you go right. no I don't find any textual support for that. You know, so. Well, well, let me give you one reading I had when when I was reading Devil House. You know, the the whole thing with um, with Gage's first novel, right? The White Witch. There is a point in the book when he Gage gets a letter from the mother of one of the victims of the White Witch. Janet Perez, uh, yes, story, yes, and it really changes uh his outlook on things um it seems it seems to really affect gage he's sort of thinking about his book in ways in the in the film that was made from it in ways that he hadn't you know the way that it, it had affected affected this woman i was reading that and i was thinking about you know i'm part of a lot of mountain goats fan groups and you know you had this song going to georgia that you had stopped playing for a while because of the way it depicted relationships is is that fair to say is that but more more because of uh yeah i mean yeah I, I, it I, I i didn't like the narrator and and the way that the dudes sort of tend to take that narrator you smile as you ease the gun from my hand and i'm frozen with joy right where i stand the world throws its light underneath your hair 40 miles from atlanta this is And you had stopped playing it for a long time, right? That's correct. I, I still generally yeah. don't. I mean, the thing is, it also, like, that song is like 20-something years old, so I also, you know, even right. <laughs> even if I thought it was really good, probably I'm kind of burnt on You've it. You've written also. a lot of songs since then. Yeah, right? and it's not, it's not <laughs> yeah. really, from a musical lyric perspective, it really doesn't really rank in my top 20, so... I mean, you've written three albums since you were last on Sound Opinions. I mean, it's you're you're prolific. You write a lot. That's of right. Songs, you know, but yeah, it, it did sort of uh, you know make me think about like I wonder if it you know echoes in in a way you know as you look back on what you wrote. No, uh, I, I don't think so. For me, no. Um, I mean, I, I guess it's a reading you can give to it, but I'm, I'm not writing about uh, myself and my life when I'm writing these books. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah. So, and I, I'm really, and I'm super not thinking about the mountain goats, generally speaking, when I write the books. It's like, you know, it's like they're, the books are for me a vacation from the mountain goats. Um, <laughs> not that, you know, I mean, I love my life on tour. I love making music, but it's, it's, I try and keep the spheres as, as discreet as I can. So, but you know, one thing that does uh, show up in a lot of your books is analog recording technology. You know, yes, that's very true. <laughs> definitely shows up with the mountain goats. <laughs> um, yes, you know, that's right. um, although I, yeah, I mean the thing is like we actually uh, we tracked goths to tape, but I think we've been in the digital domain since, with the exception of Pierre Chauvin. Uh, you know, sure, I, yeah, mo yeah, most people. The thing is, we do we actually when we track to tape, you bounce it into the computer to edit and to and to overdub. I mean, the, the reason you track to tape is for the compression, right. right? It's like that's what you want is this very sweet tape compression mm -hmm. that I don't think has been equaled by board gear yet um you get a very a very mm -hmm. tape compression is sort of its own animal um but uh but yeah it's not it's not an analog fetishism per se but yes uh those sorts of machines <laughs> tend to recur in my in my work they uh they, whether it's prose or, or elsewhere yeah i know that you've talked about this many times over the years but for sound opinions listeners who might not have delved deep into your days as a you know analog tape recorder 
What does that technology kind of say to you? Or is there a meaning behind it, a reason that you appreciate it? Mm. I mean, one thing I like is sort of once, once something's been recorded in the analog domain, it, it's erasable, but you have to go over it. You know what I mean? It's like, the, this is a hard thing to explain, but um, when you track in the digital domain, most people these days, if they, if they have a false start, they just keep going. You know, you can edit around that later. You don't stop and go back to the beginning. When you're using tape, mm-hmm. you, you stop and you go back because you don't want to waste the tape on, on a lost take. Although what's funny about that, they, in the pre-tape days when they were doing the acetates, as soon as the needle dropped, everything was going to be preserved. And I'm noticing this listening to a Charlie Parker set that I have now. That like, So if they record 38 seconds and stop, well, that 38 seconds exists on an acetate, right? And, uh, and as long mm-hmm. as the acetate didn't get thrown away, you can hear it. And that's, that's pretty incredible, especially with Charlie Parker's stuff. The listeners are such completists, you know, they want to hear absolutely every note he ever played, you know, and, and it's fascinating because it, you'll, you'll get on this complete mm-hmm. sets, like, well, here's 38 seconds of the band starting the song and somebody yells no. <laughs> that's the end. Well, now, the thing is, nowadays, when you are tracking, most of that stuff stays and then gets edited out uh, by the end of the day. You clean up the files, right, and you pull them all out. But I, I have to, in the studio, uh, I have to have somebody say rolling I, I have to have them stop and go back I, I really don't like at all the idea that the tape is always running and everything's being captured something about that is, takes any notion of performance away from me right so the idea mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. all this looks back on an earlier world when the choice to be recorded or preserved was a more conscious choice right now mm-hmm. we operate under the assumption that everything we type everywhere is being preserved by sort of this digital overmind, right? Um, and that may be true, but it's loathsome, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like, like it sort of removes the possibility of, of intentional speech or, or cheapens it, you know? And, uh, and so, so yeah, a lot, of, a lot of analog stuff in my uh, books is probably, uh, is a gesture toward the, uh, that I think speech acts have value, you know? And I think they're devalued when all of them are preserved, when there's no, no intentionality anymore. Um, mm. that's too general a statement for me to like. I don't like making general statements like that. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's some meaning in there for sure. And it, and it orbits the fact that when, that when you, you're in the analog domain, you have to make harder choices than you do in the digital domain, I think. Mm, yeah. I mean, I find this too with keyboard, like with, with modern keyboard interfaces, if you're doing keyboard sounds uh, in, in a big studio, you know, uh, through a computer, the number of choices you have is so large that I don't really think of them as choices at all. You'll land on a sound you mm. like, but you were unable to audit them all because you don't have a life that long. You know, you just find the general realm you want and you spin a dial mm-hmm. and, there's, and there's so many options. And I think, well, you know, that actually is a profound restriction of choice. It's more like a dice roll. Now that's interesting too, right? <laughs> so, but, uh, right. <laughs> but and the thing is, and that more compares to language where we're, we're limited only by the size of our vocabularies. We literally, every time we speak, you know, uh, we're facing an infinite variety of choices and bound really only by the grammar in which we speak and the subject we're coming around. And we know that when our thoughts get disorganized, uh, then we loosen up in that way, you know. But but somehow language, I think, shapes it in a way that that's a little more comprehensible to me than than when, you know, these keyboards, I've watched guys who have big brains, you know, going, okay, let's find a sound. And I'm like, oh, no, I'll, I'll never pick one for that. You have to like, show me three instruments and tell me to point my finger at one. Right. I mean... You can hear it a lot on the latest Mountain Goats record, Zarkin here. You know, the keyboard is the same sound, you know, all throughout generally, right? It's a it's a real thing from 
Muscle Shoals, right? Well, yeah. There's there's two. There's a um, there's there's the Hammond, the B three. Yeah, and right. then there was the um, uh, it's not a Rhodes, it's a Wurlitzer, right? Um, Wurlitzer, right. and and there's a piano also. But but yeah, I mean, there's a, those are the I tend to prefer instruments that sound like themselves. I'm not the guy. <laughs> we have a Nord in our band, although yeah. I've made Matt put black electrical tape over it because I can't stand the look of those red Nords. But um, but but like <laughs> that's what everybody likes is that that big big choice. And I I, I really you know there's a Catholic tendency to to prefer to prefer some restriction you know within which creativity can bloom. But yeah, I mean the other thing is like I have Spooner Oldham. If if I put Spooner Oldham on Dark and Here, if right. I put him on the Nord, he'll kill it on the Nord too. It's all the same to him. <laughs> it's like these guys weren't that good. It doesn't really matter that much. Right. You know? It's like they are more sophisticated than I am. So. Difficult to calculate Stock up on doors in case of accidents Try to keep my story straight Well, yeah, it's a, it's a good sound. It sounds good. I'm glad you didn't go for some random yeah. dice roll on a... I mean, the thing is, it, it's an aesthetic is all. It's people who are into that, they, they, they get somewhere too. It's just not my thing. So one thing I was also thinking about, um, you know, you mentioned with Derek that he does have really good parents in, in Devil House, um, the character. And I was thinking about how, you know, parents come up in, in all the books too. Um, these three books had been written after you became a parent. Is that, that right? Uh, well, I was working on Wolf for a long time before the, before I became a, sure. a father, I mean, at, at least five years. So, uh, okay. so yeah, so no, I had heard you say on the, I only listen to the mountain goats podcast. You thought that your highest calling was as a parent. Um, and so sure. I, I mean, I think just, it's true for any parent. I, I think, you yeah, know, that, that, that's just sort of, that's your, that's the most important job you're likely to get. Did you have a, a change in the way you created things after you became a parent? Only, only insofar as you sort of have to have to time manage a little more carefully. Uh, other than that, no. I mean, I uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I mean, it's like you have this change. Like when I was revising Wolf in White Van, uh, this is a complicated book, so I had to print out the uh, the manuscript and be going through sections because it moves backwards, right? So, so making sure that everything moves in an actual backwards way, you have to start moving parts around it because it wasn't written in that sequence. I'd come up with, you know, I also write um, sort of in a modular way where I'll write a section, right? A, a segment, right? Usually uh, set off by a, a, a double space on the other side of it. And some of them would sort of just be dropping in there and I'd read through a chapter and go, well, this, this module here feels like it interrupts the flow. It makes you sort of jerk too far in one direction before heading back in the other. And I wanted it to be a, a fairly persistent backwards motion. So to do that, uh, to get all the parts in the right place, and this was really intense uh, uh, because like some of like, you know, there was a point at which I remember, I don't remember what the subject was, but like, it was parts of chapter 11 had to be moved up to chapter two, right? And because the book wouldn't have like, it would have been very hard to make sense of if I didn't get the backwards movement moving just right. Mm -hmm. So um, I printed out the manuscript and I, I was cutting sections out to move them around and physically be looking at them. I can't really do that on a screen, right? I need to be seeing right. them on the page. Well, at one point I had a baby rolling on the manuscript because babies roll around on floors, right? So, had, so, so in that way, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, it was like sort of a, sort of a, a challenge, you know, <laughs> a little, yeah, a little yeah. uh, level up, you know. Right? But short of that, no, I, I don't, uh, I don't. I'm not one of those guys who like uh, decided 
to, to change what I write about or how I write in the wake of becoming a parent. I mean, I do think being a parent shapes you as a person. And so mm -hmm. then probably some of your thoughts and convictions and beliefs in the, which will doubtless be reflected in your work, right, will then be uh, newly shaped by the experiences you yeah. have as a parent. But I've always found it a little weird when like somebody, you know, has a baby and changes all their opinions about stuff. And I can't cite an example of that, but like, yeah, right, except, right. except I do know that like, a lot of people like will start writing parenting tips after they've had a child for like two years. And I'm like, you've only been doing this for two years. You don't, what do you know? Raise three of them to 18 and then share your views. That's my opinion. I mean, it's like, this is sort of one of my hobby horses. Like I think, uh -huh. I think, uh, you know, like I've been writing songs for 20 something years, but I don't consider myself qualified to teach anybody how to write a song. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, I'm not, you know, cause I haven't been studying pedagogy. I haven't been studying teaching. All I can do is tell people what I do and that's of limited use, right? So everybody sort of thinks teaching is the same thing as just saying what you yourself do. And I don't think it's the same. So. Here's another uh, question you're probably not going to like, but uh, <laughs> I have liked all the questions just fine. <laughs> I have no complaints about these questions. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, when I listened to Let Me Bathe in Demonic Light, it reminded me yes. of Devil House. And you've said there's no, no connection, but... Um, but there is a word demon in one. Yeah. Well, and down at the end of the bombed out street, the shell of a house where my friends and me used to meet, you know, it sounds like sure, Devil yeah, yeah. House, you know. Down at the end of a bomb out street the shallow house where my friends and me used to meet someday the old flesh will give way to the new find a functioning mirror inside and slip People really want to find a continuity between <laughs> between Mount Good songs and books, but that's not. And people ask me to do that too. They say, "Hey, you want to do a, a, a musical based on this song?" And I go, "No, I don't." <laughs> so, but yeah, uh, right. uh, so no, I mean, yeah, I mean, when I'm thinking of that, the story is quite different, right? Because the the, the in the second verse, the guy goes to New York, right, and uh, yeah, uh, and he's slipping right, right, through time. Right. It's you know, totally and, different. Uh, yes. Let me be in demonic light is much more autobiographical. Um, or is this just a story? Mm. You know, it's like what those houses I'm talking about are not even houses or motels yeah. or whatever. You know, it's like it's that the analog you're looking for in that song is Palm Court Yajna, right? Um, uh, the hotel room, right? mm. the motel. Room. Yeah, uh, totally. That's what yeah. you're looking for there. But yeah, but they're they're similar in the in right. the there's you know there's a house, but but the house where Derek and Seth live is a castle, right? It's not it's <laughs> not it, it doesn't look good to you or uh, me, yes. right? But it's a castle. It's right. their home and it's nurturing, right? And the house in that song mm -hmm. is is none of those things, right? It's uh it's it, it it's a shell of a bombed out house, right? Um and and he's looking actively to shed that skin, whereas Seth and Derek and Alex and Angela are defending. Uh, their castle against invaders. It's it's a glorious right. place, right? It, uh, and it's something they convert from yeah. something unglorious into something truly magnificent, right? So 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 it's it's a pretty strong contrast, I think. 
Totally. Yeah. I, I will point out though, there is one connection between your music and your books, and that is the audiobook for Universal Harvester. You recorded a soundtrack for it. Yes. I've actually done that um, for all three uh, of, uh, oh, good. I think yeah, all I, three. I forget if I did one for Wolf and White Van. I know I recorded the book, but I can't remember if there's music on it. I think there is though. And I know okay. we did music again for the audio on Devil House. Great, great. I just don't trust anybody else to do it, is it? (laughs) 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 Well, thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure, man. We'll talk again soon. All right, thanks. All right, bye. Take care. That's it for this bonus episode of Sound Opinions. Let us know what you thought of it by leaving a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. We love playing those messages on the show. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions was produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. Thanks for listening.